0: Hello, and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson.
1: And I'm William Papaya.
0: Uh, Today we're here to talk about professional development and labor activism in the arts. We have uh, two amazing guests with us. We have Heather Banderi.
2: Hi, Patty.
1: Hi, Phil. And Nikki Columbus.
0: Hi. Uh, just so everybody knows a little bit about uh, Heather Darcy uh she is the program director of the Art World Conference, uh, which she will talk to us a little bit about. An independent curator, the co-founder of the Remix, which is a podcast, um, an adjunct lecturer at Brown University, a lead organizer of Forward Union, and a consultant for several for-profit and non-for not-for-profit arts institutions. She is also a uh, established um, and much lauded uh, writer. So the second edition of her book, uh, Artwork, was published by Simon & Schuster in October of 2017. Uh, If you are an artist who uh, is interested in um, just professionalizing your career in any way, this book is a must have. And I'm not just saying that because I am quoted in it. It is absolutely the, I I think anyway, it is very easily digestible and has a lot of just practical information forms, um, profit splits, anything that you would want to know about, um, it is there. So I highly recommend uh, pretty much every project that Heather is involved in.
2: That's very sweet. Thank you, Patty.
1: <laughs> hey, And um, Nikki Columbus is a writer and editor. She is currently organizing a monthly series of online forums about the future of cultural workers after COVID-19 and of culture and labor more generally uh, titled Art Workplace Emergency Sessions with the Graduate Center of the Free uh, with the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and the Vera List Center for Arts and Politics. Her recent article Free Your Mind, a Speculative Review of New MoMA, uh, co-authored with art historian Claire Bishop and published in N Plus uh, One, imagined a socially just museum of modern art. And this is a really fantastic article that um, I highly recommend if anyone has not read it yet. I know it's been fairly widely shared. Um, she was previously an associate editor at Artform and executive editor at Parquet until the magazines close in 2017. Between these two editorial posts, she was a curator of Townhouse Gallery, a nonprofit arts space in Cairo. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Nikki.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, just so all of our listeners know, um, I know we've only just done the uh, bios, but as per usual, we will put all the links to uh, relevant material that we discuss in uh, the podcast notes. So you can look for those, and I, I would consider pretty much it any of these links from today, really essential for uh, arts workers. Um, So let's, uh, let's dig into the podcast. William, why did we decide that we wanted to talk to Heather and Nikki?
1: Well, you know, Patty, you and I are both involved in different aspects of the art world from, you know, I have my studio. I've been making work and showing with galleries for years. You've been writing criticism. We both are engaged in teaching. Um, you're teaching at Parsons or the new school. Yeah. I'm doing some teaching at SVA. I've taught up at Cornell and, you know, none of these are sort of um, discrete worlds. Uh, we've, you know, we've set up this podcast so we can talk about the intersection of art, money, and politics. And, um, you know, we, one of the things that keeps coming up is this sort of connection between, um, let's say kind of professional development and teaching artists and trying to help individuals sort of move forward in the world. And then I spend a lot of my time also in sort of organizing and activist circles where we're trying to work uh, in a sort of collective manner. And I, you know, when we were talking about this before the podcast, it seemed like bringing Heather and the Art World Conference and the forward union fair, which, you know, she was a lead organizer on um, into conversation with Nikki, who's organizing these, you know, the the emergency sessions, would be a sort of really interesting um, conversation between this, I guess the division for me, at least, is this idea of professional development geared towards individuals and then collective action, sort of rooted in labor activism, I would say, is where we've seen it most with a lot of the museum, uh, labor union organizing and mutual aid, and a lot of the different kinds of um, collective actions we've been seeing. And that, you know, I think it, it does set up some tensions that I think would be interesting to sort of talk about and how these two kind of areas could potentially support each other. Um, so that, that was sort of my impetus for, for wanting to, to bring on our guests today.
0: Yeah, and I think also uh, you know when we talk about these uh, issues, a lot of things um, that I feel like the art world does a very poor uh, world of a, a job of addressing are the concerns of uh, parents in the art world. Um, so there is really uh, uh, I I can't tell to what degree um, the fact that I don't have kids um, sort of. Uh, influences how much I end up uh, talking about children with uh, my colleagues, but I do feel like it is something that's just um, the cost um, of having a family um, and what it means to to have a family and um, uh, sort of be dedicating your entire life to art is not really talked about that much. And I wanted to talk to both you know, Heather and Nikki about this, because it's something that does come up uh, with my friends every once in a while. And I do hear it also uh, just in terms of quarantining right now, um, you know, this feels like something that, um, like parenting maybe doesn't get easier, but harder as the quarantine gets longer. And I, I wanted to find out, uh, you know, from both of you, like, how that was um, uh, affecting you. And, I, you know, maybe to begin with, um, Heather, when, I, when we contacted you, I recall your response being somewhat hesitant. You know, you, it's like, I think you said you, you needed to think about it a little bit and you were a little afraid to talk about what it, like, what it meant to be a mom in the pandemic. And I wondered if you'd tell our listeners about that, because that seems like something that almost certainly other, like other mothers would, would share that feeling.
2: Yeah. So first, thanks for asking me to come. And so I was very excited to get the email. Cause also Nikki, I um, read every article about your situation at PS1 with great interest. And in fact, um, friends of mine who are not in the art world at all forwarded me that those articles because they're like, you need to read this. You need to read this. I was like, I'm on it. Um, anyway, so, cause I think, um, parenting, being pregnant in the art world, having a baby in the art, there, there are things that, um, only recently have started to be discussed more openly and, I will say, when I um, so when I got the email, I got a little nervous because I thought I had made a lot of progress in this area, being able to talk about being a mom openly. And I think I wrote in the email that I've gotten way too free with posting photos of my kids on Instagram. And I was always very careful not to do that as much before. Um, and so I've gotten free with that, but not necessarily with the talking. When I was having my, so I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And when I was having the five-year-old back then... Um, I was so nervous, like so outrageously nervous because I I had all those silly thoughts in my head that, you know, no one was going to take me seriously anymore. I also was one of those people who went to work in the morning and stayed through dinner, like, because I had lots of stuff to do. And I really liked my job. That was when I worked at Greens gallery. And, um, and I had, a, I had a lot of work to do and I did it like that. And I knew everything was going to shift. And so that made me very, very nervous. And I was teaching at the time. And I remember like not mentioning once that I had a child that first semester where I went to work with a baby, um, not once by this, that by the second kid, I had sort of, I had to get over a lot of it. And I also went to this really amazing retreat that um, Dina Hagog had put together um, in Baltimore. It was through when she was doing the contemporary and she put together this retreat for artists and arts administrators. And um, it was a professional development kind of a thing. So it sort of ties in and it was really inspiring to me. And there was one breakout session where it was only for, it was for people who had kids or wanted to have kids. And there was no agenda, it was just talking. And everyone sort of said their fears and why they didn't talk about it. And I talked about how I had never once mentioned it to anyone except my closest people at work. Um, And uh, it just, it was super cathartic for me. So anyway, by the second kid, I thought I was over it. And I shared and I put things on Instagram and whatever else. But when you wrote that email, all those fears came back again. I was like, well, this is too public. That's too public. Because Instagram, there's like this anonymity to sort of, you don't see the people looking at your post. So yeah. Anyway, um, but I'm here, so I need to talk about it. I think the pandemic, so I was getting in a groove, I will say, with the five-year-old and the two-year-old. I know you're going to ask about, like, childcare. care. Um, one, the two-year-old was in daycare, five-year-old was in kindergarten. Everything was moving along really well. Now we're all together 24 hours a day. And while that was lovely for the first couple of weeks, um, and like a really special time. because it's like, oh my God, we're never together this much. This is great. The two kids are playing together all day. This is fantastic. Um, Now that we're going on like two months, um, I'm petrified (laughs) of like what is gonna happen. And my my kindergartner goes to public school and um, there's been talk of, you know, maybe schools will open in September, but be prepared to potentially homeschool November, December. and just having that uncertainty of a routine is something that really scares me um, because before I was I was nervous to even say I had kids and I could fit in all the work that I needed to do in the time where I had childcare. And now I'm it's, it's, it's just a very scary time. I think I probably for all parents, I'm not sure. Maybe other people have it much more together than me, which is one of the reasons why I was nervous to talk.
0: Like, when you say you're afraid, like, you were, there are so many questions that I have, like, like, uh, when you were afraid to tell people about that, like, was it more than just, like, people won't take me seriously? Or were you afraid that somebody would think that you, you weren't doing enough work? Or was it something, or was it bigger than that? Like,
2: I mean, a lot of this stuff is internal, obviously, you know, me having to get over certain ideas or perceptions that I think other people have. And some of it's concrete, like Nikki knows, like, you know, that people are judging you in certain ways, you know, that, um, that you, you might be discounted before you're asked to do something, because they know you have stuff to do after work, or you have to pick up kids. And I mean, I would prefer to make a yes or no, You know, I would prefer to decide whether I wanted to do something and still be asked, you know, um, so, you know, that kind of stuff happens, but then there's obviously the other side too, where it's like, can I actually take care of children and still do all the things? So it's coming, it's coming from both sides. Like, am I doing right by my family and by the work that I want to do? So, and I will, I will say when I had, when I was pregnant with my, um, first kid, um, you know, going to work, there were certain people that would say things like, oh, God, you're still pregnant? Like, when is that going to end? Like, things like that. Oh so there were like, <laughs> little, there were, like, comments here and there that weren't, they were, like, jokes, but not really jokes. That would happen a lot, too, so.
1: And I, I guess I'm curious, you know, Nikki, was this a subject that you wanted to address or not address because you've been put in a very public uh, kind of role, uh, you know, uh, around the issue?
3: Yeah, no, I am, no, I definitely... When I became pregnant um, and uh, started, you know, was looking for a job, was interviewing for jobs, I spoke with friends, not even in the art world, but um, a, friend, a friend in journalism, a friend in theater, um, and they both said, don't tell anyone you're pregnant. They can't ask you. Don't talk about it until you're offered the job and then and then you can disclose this uh, i mean the thing is that our society is not built for for parents um and but then the in the art world it's even more extreme right because right you are expected to go to openings at night and all you know there there's no set schedule it's not a nine to five job ten to six whatever usually uh and so and so right so i I didn't talk about it. I told very few people that I was pregnant. I was not, I didn't get very visibly pregnant. So I went to Venice, I went to Documenta. Uh, amazingly, like nobody really seemed to notice. I wasn't sure. I thought perhaps the people who are interviewing me at MoMA PS1, Klaus Biesenbach and Peter Illy, various points. I thought they must know I'm pregnant. And they, you know, it's it's kind of obvious now, and they're just not. They're just, you know, they can't bring it up. Um, And I kind of, you know, worried if this is going to affect things. But I thought, oh, this is great. They don't care. (laughs) Well, right. So uh, I followed my friend's advice. And uh, as you know, long story short, they offered me the job. I told them I just had a baby and suddenly everything changed. Um, So certainly since then, you know, I have been um, thrown into this position of being um a a huge vocal advocate for uh parent you know men and women but of course especially women with children um and that as Heather says you know we are responsible adults you know if we say we can do this do our job and have children then we can do that you know, so if I say I'm going to do this job, you know, I have a reputation already. You know that like I, I don't it's it's not that, you know, I shirk responsibilities. If if we say that we can do this, you know, we can do it. Um, and then at the same time, you know, and it is hard to sort of argue both things at once. We also, you know, have to push for, um, you know, a fair um uh, fair work hours, fair, you know, family leave, um, you know, family leave is ridiculous. New York and New York city have the, the best family leave policies in the country. And it still, of course, doesn't compare, you know, to, to outside the U S, um, many countries, uh, but, and we have to say, you know, reasonable work hours, um, you know, and, and that, you know, and, and also like, you know, there are people who are very young and have junior positions, having kids and, of course, that should also be worked around too or be possible. Um, but also, you know, I'm in my 40s. So I thought I'm not in a job where where I'm gonna be working, you know, until three o'clock in the morning or something. So anyway, yeah. So so both like we can do our job and have children. That's very important to say. But at the same time, let's try to come up with like sane, family friendly uh, work experience. And it's for everyone because also people have, partners people have other things they want to do with their lives you know we have to cut you know the art world doesn't need to be this demanding of everybody's time and energy Mm -hmm.
0: and to what extent do you feel like your employers or I I know that there's some piecing together of work um understand yours that your situation is different from someone who who doesn't have kids because I have heard that um, in some places of work, uh, you know, from friends, that that's um, they feel like that understanding is not quite there.
2: Well, I will say when I um, when I was at Mixed Greens and I had uh, my first kid, um, they are su- super understanding. But I think that that gallery in general, we had set it up so that. Um, everyone was able to sort of explore their passions. Like Nikki was just saying, it's not just about kids, it's about other interests and activist work and whatever else. And so we had always set it up that um, you, could, you needed to do the things that fulfilled you, whatever that may be, um, and just make up the time when you want. So we had a fairly flexible work schedule as long as you were doing the work and putting in the time and the passion and whatever there, then you could also do that elsewhere. So we never had an issue Um, I will say schedules, like Nikki just said, um, you know, the openings at night are difficult sometimes, but you know, if you, again, it's all about planning for me, like knowing what's coming, I'm fine with, as long as I know it's coming, I'm very bad with last second, you know, this thing is going to be tomorrow night. Then that's, that's a problem for me usually. Um, although in the pandemic, I know exactly where I'm going to (laughs) be, it's all good, but normally, um, but then I had I had another job where um, the schedule, the work schedule was also weekends. And I went into that job not knowing I was pregnant. Um, and I had to leave that job fairly quickly and I'll just say it's, it was smack melon. And I think this is a problem and I love that institution. I love that place. I love everything about it. It was a dream for me to actually work there. I'd wanted to actually, from the time that mixed screens closed, I was like, oh my God, my perfect job would be smack melon. And then I got it. And then I had to leave it. And because I'm a responsible adult and I realized that that schedule was not compatible at all with my situation, um I had to work Sundays, you know, and so again, talking about childcare and having to pay someone to be able to work um, on a day when that i anyway so it didn't it didn't work out. I think they've changed some policies since then, but um in general, they weren't unique. that wasn't a bad thing that they did at all. it's that. All, almost all nonprofits are set up that way or lots and lots of arts institutions are set up where the weekends are, are a time when you have to work and that's really tough. Um, so it, so I think, was, yeah.
3: No, I was just gonna say that also just to say here that right at, at MoMA PS1, I was gonna be a performance curator, which means research going to performances in the evening and the MoMA PS1 performances are held on Sundays but it was the same thing I said you know, as when I know in advance and I can arrange childcare, my, my, you know, my partner can be home, that's fine. I think the only thing that I asked for, which was different from in terms of scheduling, which I had already discussed with Peter Ealing was just the, you know, it can't be a surprise, you know.
2: Right, right, exactly. And so, so anyway, I, f- I feel like it depends on the institution but I feel like overall it's, it's, it's not child friendly and there needs to be, or um, parent friendly. Or caregiver friendly, there need to be like policy changes. Yeah.
1: I just want to draw one like thread. Um, when, when I was doing some work with Occupy um, Arts and Labor, you know, that going into that, one of the things that became very clear is that many of the people involved in arts and labor have children and that taking time to meet on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. To 9 p.m. and then go out and discuss what we discussed at the meetings. After that, that put a huge burden on the activists, and so childcare became one of the planks, one of the working groups of our labor, just to be able to do that work. And it was a real burden, and it, you know a lot of people couldn't devote the time to the organizing because of childcare, and that you know the activism depends so much on people's time and volunteer labor, that it becomes a real challenge, you know, I think in that circle. And the flip side of that, I remember very early on uh, having a discussion with like Lisa Schroeder at one of, you know, about her experience at one of the art fairs where a collector walked up and asked, you know, some questions about the, the artist whose work was on display and said, you know, um, is she married? Is she planning on having children? And Lisa was like, why are these important questions? Why would you be asking this? And it really was about whether or not that artist would be seen as uh, being committed to their career versus childcare. And I've always thought about that, you know, in the back of my mind, um, what that means, you know, having children as being a kind of vulnerability in in that, in the art world. And, you know, it's something that we have to address in activist circles as well, you know, and so just this kind of difference, between the kind of vulnerability, I guess that that uh, having children can um, pose, you know, to the kind of, the kinds of work that we want to do, and clearly uh, the art world and most of the institutions are not geared towards supporting that and seeing it as a really important kind of labor.
3: I mean, where my son was going to to school to preschool was uh, subsidized because uh, my partner is a faculty at the CUNY Graduate Center um, and, uh, and it they have a preschool as many of the colleges do too for they're actually for the children of students but if they don't fill it with children of students then children of faculty can go um, and it's in the same building where she works she would walk to school with him you know, to her office drop him off on the same floor at his school and it was incredible and that's why when we wrote the article about you know about you know hashtag new moma what a new moma really should look like we included childcare. but and i don't know if i'm now transitioning segueing too quickly but it is then well what happens now right when the the first it was a challenge there's a challenge just finding adequate childcare and affordable childcare. Now, for most of us, we can't even use childcare, you know, and and we have the kids at home, which is like a whole other thing we weren't planning for.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, um, we have the directions to go with the podcast, but I also want to just give you the opportunity to talk about how the pandemic has impacted your lives professionally and, you know, uh, having children, how that's, how taking care of them, educating them, during the pandemic, it has you know impacted your lives, you know, in the work that you're doing. Um, just to, before we dive into the the much larger kind of political situation we find ourselves in. So.
2: Um, I will say now I'm working with someone named Dexter Wimberly on Art World Conference, and uh, that's what's taking up most of my time these days. And he has four kids. So I couldn't be happier. Because <laughs> because every time I speak with him, I think, oh, how lucky I am that I'm only dealing with two other humans. <laughs> um, so he's very understanding. And I'm very, so we, we get to, I mean, I'm so thrilled right now to be working with someone else that has so many children. Um, because, yeah, so we figure, we figure out the schedule. And it's very irregular, very irregular. He's also in Japan. It's just like, Total bedlam, but um, uh, what what the way that I've had to deal with it, and I would love to hear because I I have friends who I've heard about what they're doing. It's just no one has it right so far that I've heard. We're all trying different things each week, and as Patty said at the beginning, I feel like it's getting harder, not easier. I thought it was going to get easier, but the the beauty of those first couple of weeks is just has just worn off for the kids and myself. Like we're all just wanting to, um, change. Um, but so what I, I have to, I devote a lot of time to them during the day from uh, like morning meeting kindergarten where they all get on zoom and there's nothing more, um, entertaining than seeing 25 children on a zoom call every morning. Like, so that sets my day off pretty well. Um, until around 5.00 PM when my husband like emerges from a room in our house after he's been working all day, maybe 6 PM. And then I work at night and that is not, that's not a long-term solution to anything because I've like what I end up doing is sacrificing sleep and that's not cool. But, um, but that's the way, that's the only way that I've found so far to deal with it, um, without putting my children in front of a television for several hours a day, which I do have to do occasionally because I have a meeting during the day or I have something that I need to do. And, and telling them to play nicely together is just not going to last for more than 10 minutes.
0: You know, I want to say that we, like, so um, we haven't gotten to this yet, but we, we actually have a set of questions that one of uh, my friends gave uh, gave us um, that, you know, he wanted to know who, and he's a parent. And one of those questions was, how much screen time do your kids have per day? Because, I mean, I've talked to him um, and he's just sort of parked the kids in front of a screen. Cause like, what else can you do for a break?
2: They turn into zombies. And so they just stay still for a really long time. <laughs> it's, <just> like, <laughs> it's magical and terrible and magical. And so my kids, I, I, I can't wait to hear what Nikki says, but my kids used to have very little screen time. And I tried to, you know make it educational and make it now if they're watching there's this really silly show called like um oh no it's there's one that's like dinosaurs and robots mixed together and another one with like cars and robots mixed together and those were off limits before like off limits now if oh dino trucks done Not, I don't want to promote that, but anyway, um, (laughs) if, if he's watching dino trucks for an hour and I get to have a meeting in silence, like that's a win for me right now. So there's no like limit on screen time, but I try, I try to, again, like be present for many hours during the day, which means I'm up late at night.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah, I, oh, that was a lot a lot there to to respond to. First, just in terms of personally and professionally, you know, I I was planning a big two-day summit in April, which I had to rapidly rethink as a, a series of online forums dealing with more immediate issues. Well, I thought the summit was dealing with immediate issues, but things like, you know, discrimination and all of these issues, which of course are still incredibly important, felt less immediate when suddenly people didn't have jobs. So improving your workplace when you no longer have the workplace, we had to rethink that. Um, And, uh, but then also I was planning, as soon as that was done, I was going to get a full-time job, which now I don't know how I would find a full-time job, but also I can't get a full-time job because, I have to be taking care of our son. So I have one, two and a half year old. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I, I just want to say, you know, and I'm sure Heather feels this way, you know, we are very, very lucky. My partner has, you know, has a full-time job as a professor. She's it's, you know, not wood, it's safe. Um, we are healthy. We have a place to live, but we are also, very very sad and angry all the time about what's happening mm-hmm. um yeah. and, and also even from that position of privilege you know it really it it, it is a, a challenge and so uh yeah so as I said my son was going to preschool he had a babysitter he was going three days a week on the days he didn't he had a babysitter so I could work from home while my partner was at work um now we're both at home um taking times unlike. um your your uh, partner, your husband. Um, uh, my partner is can be flexible, so we can sort of go back and forth during the day. Um, and it is it is stressful. We both are have our moments, and we're like, no, no, I need to work now. No, no, I need to work now. You know, um, uh, nap time. We're like totally trying to fit everything in. You know, um, and uh, and yeah, and then we talk with friends who are like, so what TV shows are you catching up on? And I'm like, no, no, like we're like, we're just trying to find time to talk to each other, you know, at night before we go to bed, you know, because um, if we talk to each other in front of the toddler, he's like, stop talking. <laughs> um, so uh, talk to, you know, he wants, he doesn't want us talking about, you know, adult things. Um <laughs> So, um, no, and, and, uh, and so, and then as for, for screen time, uh, yeah, we have gotten more, more lax with that, uh, basically at 5 p.m. is when you can watch, you know, whatever, um, and it's usually either Sesame Street or his favorite jazz bassist Stanley Clark.
2: These are, the, these are the two things that he watches. He doesn't um, he doesn't know about dino trucks yet. No, and I'm not going to tell him. Don't don't ever don't ever tell him. But how
3: how do you how do you then the problem we're having then is that like when we have to turn it off for dinner time, you know, after like 45 minutes or so,
2: the wailing Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the huge problem. It's like you get the quiet when you need the quiet. And then at the end, the aftermath of the screen time is so bad. It's so bad because their little brains, I, something happens and, and they, they break, like they just have these meltdowns where they just scream for the tele, for the screen again, whatever screen it's just
3: and he knows, he's yeah, like, I just want to watch videos all the time. And it's just like, he knows, like, this isn't right, but this is what I want. And we're like, yeah.
1: So,
0: yeah. yeah and then, so heartbreaking. It
1: yeah. is. You know, and I guess I'm just curious, what were the routines beforehand? How how was life differently? Yeah, I guess, what were the kids doing when they weren't, uh, you know, sort of, put in front of the screens, right? Because I think as adults right now, we have very different relationships with the screens. On one hand, we're spending an enormous amount of time on Zoom calls like this. And the flip side of it is I hear people talking about what TV shows they're watching, what they're sort of binging as an escape, you know? And Nikki, you sort of answered my question. You're like, I don't have time for TV shows. You know, I'm organizing emergency sessions and doing all this work. And Heather, you're working at night. You know, there's no time for that kind of you know, escape uh, from reality, which I think a lot of people sort of maybe are experiencing who have more traditional jobs. Whereas this, nothing's really changed in my life in terms of how much time I'm in the studio or organizing, uh, which is crazy, but it's also a question that we do ask most of our guests. Like, what are you looking at or doing, um, you know, that would be the equivalent of putting your kids in front of dino trucks, you know? Maybe it's not great, but it's something- For
3: ourselves?
1: Yeah, for yourself. <laughs>
3: <'Cause> I, <think laughs> I don't i don't we don't I have no equivalent of dino truck
2: neither Whether, do i i want it like i want it so badly and i get so jealous and i want to i want to echo really fast that i i also am like super privileged position of being able to do that during the day like how lucky is that like I actually get to stay home and I actually get to watch them I cannot even imagine like being a single parent right now and having those kids like that blows my mind and I feel so bad for the people or the essential workers who have to leave like who takes care of like I don't so I'm having enough trouble with this that I that I just can't imagine what other people are going through um but I want. I did start watching Killing Eve, like I, and that like in the middle of the night while I'm doing other things because it was like the only thing that I could like fit in, and it was about murder, and it just made me feel better because I'm also angry all the time, so I needed to watch like a, a murderer. I mean, that's so I
3: didn't sad. quite get to murder, but yeah, we watched. I think all we watched is one episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is just, at least just being really antisocial.
0: Ooh. I I fall asleep to um movies and like whatever else that are like of a different time. So times that where like the problems seem kind of quaint. Um and that like you know I I did like a whole week of that like watching like 40s movies about class and that sort of thing. I think I lasted like 20 minutes max in each one and then I was asleep. <laughs> But it felt like comforting because I, I mean, I too, like, you know, I, as a journalist, um, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, you know, I open it up. I'm like, I think I'll just close this back down, you know, and you kind of, there's a real kind of, uh, navigation that has to take place, um, for like how to preserve your kind of mental sanity in a, um, media environment that's filled with shit, because there is literally
3: a lot of shit happening. Um, I read much too much Twitter. I'm much too much Twitter for what it's held me, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, so there is like a sort of professional requirement to navigate some of that, but also like um, a uh, obligation to yourself for Mm -hmm. self care. Like I literally can't function if I am too aware of what's going on. I don't, I literally have no idea how a political reporter handles this. like. Mm
1: -hmm. But, you know, I think it's an interesting maybe transition moment to talk about the kind of broader political realities and the struggles because Heather, as you say, you know, like many of us, we're in fairly privileged positions. You know, we are safe, we're secure, we're healthy. And yet we know that there's a lot of people that are really struggling and, you know, this, this kind of general question that I've been thinking about, though, for shifting into the, the projects and the work that you've been engaged in um, is sort of around this idea of, like, not just self-care, but taking care of your own career and developing your own practice. And, and we're doing this in a pandemic where there's so much sort of speculation about how the art world will change and whether those changes will be for the better as like Nikki and Claire speculated in their review of MoMA, what it might look like if it were a better system. And at the same time, you know, will the art world, are we, I guess, sort of preparing artists for an art world that may no longer exist or will things kind of, you know, settle back into the way they were going, um, which didn't seem to be great anyway. Uh, And so, you know, I think it would be great to kind of, you know, hear about uh, the Art World Conference and then the emergency sessions and, you know, talk about, um, I guess, this kind of relationship of how do we sort of help ourselves and then how do we start to really um, maybe work together uh, so that we don't, aren't just operating from different positions of relative privilege, you know, Mm -hmm. to some degree.
2: So um, to take you back for a second, um, Dexter and I decided to, Put together art world conference um, to have, because there there are conferences in the art world, really good ones, actually, but a lot of them aren't um, uh, marketed toward or made for artists. Um, a lot of them are for arts administrators or a certain subsection of the art world or academia or something like that. And, um, and I've been pretty committed to professional practice for artists for a while. And so it made, perf- it made sense that we would work together. We thought it was really important to have in-person conferences because of this idea of community and to make people talk about subjects that aren't, like, forget about art world, forget about being an artist, forget about being, being an arts administrator. Like, people don't like talking about money, period. Um, a lot of families don't like talking about money. A lot of people grow up never talking about money, and they have a lot of baggage um, when when they come in contact with money one way or the other. Um, And it doesn't matter how much money you have actually, you can have a really bad relationship with money. So the idea of a bunch of people being able to talk about money together in person where you had to get comfortable more quickly was really interesting to us actually. So like financial literacy that's now sometimes happening in high schools, we wanted to do with artists who had never done this before. So the basis of the conference was financial literacy, actually. However, we always knew that um, learning this stuff personally would never be enough, that it had to be a community endeavor. So, and you had to, at the same time you were talking about um, your taxes, for instance, like on a really basic level, you should also be talking about growing your community, um, and talking about all this stuff together. So in-person conferences, we did one in New York last year that went well. Um, and then we did one in LA in February, not knowing what was about to happen, <laughs> like had no idea. I mean, I think back, it was the middle of February. We we have these um, like movement interventions during the conference and people were like hugging and slapping hands and doing all this stuff. And it was really lovely. Um, and Los Angeles was so warm and it was beautiful. And then we get back and we had to uh, come to terms with the fact that our next conference in-person was May 1st and there was no way it was going to happen. And so we also had to change really quickly to see, um, well, we canceled that one and then, or postponed it, but now it's like postponed and postponed and postponed and hopefully it'll happen next year um, because we're still committed to this in-person engagement. Um, but we had to change really quickly. I refuse to reuse the word pivot right now, Um, to, uh, ah, it's all I want to say, but to uh, a series of workshops, it sounds like a little bit like these emergency, where before, okay, so priorities changed, obviously, before our priorities were um, basic financial, like financial literacy, and then talking about community, we had on our list of like things to talk about in the past, things like healthcare and childcare and um, housing and all this stuff. And we, did it, we, we didn't really address those topics because they kept getting pushed for other things that seemed more urgent or more concrete, like six months ago, a year ago. And now um, our online, so we changed to some online workshops. We're doing a few a month. And the last, two, the last, one, the last one was on debt. Um, which we had addressed at the in-person conferences, but now it was like a deep dive into debt um, and credit and credit scores and all of that. And the one before that was healthcare. And the next one is about the rent strike and housing. And, um, and so our the topics that we had thought about before that we thought were very important, but didn't weren't able to fit in are now like the main, um, the main content of what we're doing. And I think it's really hard for us because while it was about personal empowerment and professional development, we were never, um, I mean, we sort of, we explicitly talked about it kind of, but it was never, we just wanted to set up situations where community would be formed or set up conversations where community would happen more naturally. We weren't trying to force things. And now it's really hard to do that on Zoom. That's all I can say. It's just like very, very difficult. So I'm in a, a moment where I'm trying to figure this all out. But anyway, that's where Art World Conference came from. And that's sort of where we're at right now.
1: Nikki, do you want to tell us a little bit about the um, emergency sessions, which are, again, available online if anyone wants to watch the first hour intros with sort of keynote speakers? Or, uh, and then there's breakout sessions, which is a much longer kind of three hour commitment, I think.
3: Well, you can choose one topic and then it's just one hour but um yeah first actually i wanted to just re- quickly return maybe because our lives are so scrambled right now it's okay if for a moment i go back to the childcare thing to to- one because of something that heather said about how oh you know i so many parents like nobody's getting it right and i wanted to address that as this is not usually my i'm i'm a uh, not usually the way I would see this, but we did in the first session, emergency session, one of the breakouts was with a child and adolescent therapist. Um, and one, and it was a very different sort of, um, you know, way of talking about things after the first hour about labor organizing. Uh, but one of the things that she kept saying, which became like really soothing after an hour of this, was like, take it easy, be easy on yourself. We're all doing what we can. You're doing a great job. And I was like, oh yeah. so. I'm sure you're doing a great job. Every we're all doing what we can. And then the other thing I just wanted to say, um, which was because the, your final question that you had in your notes— whoever wrote this—but I have a friend whose child licked a bodega doormat, and he's asked what your practices are for outside time to keep safe. Yeah, that was me. So I, yeah, if you know, if that friend is listening now, I just I'd like to say put your kid in a mask and you don't have to worry about the the tongue licking. I know this was early on, maybe before we were all wearing masks. Kids over age two, or even if they're mobile, I think they should, you know, and they're younger, they should be wearing a mask outside. And like, and this is my sort of helpful advice thing. We did it in phases, you know, it's not like, a mask all the time or a mask not like at first we said you have to wear it when we're inside the building in the hallway in the lobby in the elevator and then he could wear it on the block and then he'd take it off in the park and now he's gotten re- he's two and a half and he's gotten really good at wearing it all the time so you know you can take it slowly but that, that's how you keep them safe anyway yeah. now <laughs> back to
1: can i can i share yeah. thing? um i i have two friends who are artists, and um, my friend David has talked a lot about um, having to kind of learn the ropes of helping his daughters learn online, and he's kind of figured it out, feels really good about that, and having taught public high school for like 14 and a half years, I just want to, you know, say thank you um, and, and recognize the fact that so many parents are becoming educators and experiencing what it is to kind of have to teach, and that's another kind of work that's Added on top of that, but David and his partner have kind of figured out a schedule. They're comfortable with the teaching, and one of their rules for when they take their daughters outside is they just can't stop moving. You know, like just keep mm-hmm. moving, don't stop for the doorknob. You know, everything should be sort of geared around not standing still. Um, and I can't yeah, say they've sure. got anything right, but they're, you know, the circumstances of their work. Has allowed them to kind of just be parents at home right now and share studio time, and th- as far as I can tell, they're they're doing okay. They're doing it right, um, and it, it's nice to know that that can happen uh, when you when you have safety and security.
3: Um, yeah. Right, yeah. So, Mickey, sorry. But please. yeah, no, 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 no. Please, I I I did the scrambling of the. Few Not- no. No. <laughs> so about the. Um, yeah, the 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 art workplace and I think it's funny that Heather you have something called art work, art workplace, like we you know we need to come up with some new <laughs> sort of puns here. Um <laughs> but uh uh when we have more time. Um but yeah, so it it's it this kind of the original summit grew out of both, you know my experience with my, my lawsuit, my discrimination lawsuit, um, and then what I saw was so much that was going on in, in the art world, um, protests against toxic philanthropy, um, really, you know, vocal challenges to white supremacy and cultural organizations, um, unionization, at museums across the country. Uh, and it felt like a lot of these conversations and fights were happening uh, independently. Um, and I thought you know let's bring them together because obviously these things are connected. Uh, and, and so we um, we had to rethink that when it wasn't going to be in person, and when it became clear that um, you know, as I said, right, focusing on the workplace became becomes very different when a lot of people no longer have a workplace. Uh, and so the first session, uh, focused and, and focused on museum layoffs, um, and and then also moved into rent strikes, um, and then the, and also uh, the artist Sean Leonardo talking about his work um, in social justice uh, and with um, helping young people who were facing incarceration, and giving them an an, an alternate. Um, a uh, path in the arts, um, and and then the second uh, forum, I really wanted to to move out of just the art world and let's look at um, at, at what's happening in in other areas. Uh, so it focused on university organizing and debt organizing uh, and mutual aid, um, and then a little bit in the Q and A, including. Uh, a New York state assembly member. Um, so to sort of talk about where government can take over and where, or where it shouldn't take over and isn't. Uh, so, and then in the third session next month, I think we're hoping to kind of return to the art world with a little bit of this broader focus. Okay, now what can we do? Because talking with university organizers and hearing all the speakers, you realize how much can be done that people in the art world Aren't doing, Um, you know. There's, there's, there's just like you know, there, there actual, there are real protests happening from people who actually like adjuncts who are in danger of losing their job or or have or don't have adequate health care and so on, and they're really doing something. It's not just um, you know museum workers. And, and others, the rest of us being, oh, how do how do we respond to this? All these people have lost their job. Like there, you can. There's more that we need to think about, like what we can be doing. Um, another thing that's, that's really clear is it, outside the art world, like there's a, a huge academic solidarity statement signed by like big names, like Judith Butler, um, to name one, because I can't think of the other ones <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, and you see again, there's nothing like this in the art world where are the big names the influential people in the art world standing up for uh, all of the workers who have been laid off for a load had pay cuts um, you know you you don't I don't know where they are where like there are change.org petitions that we're all signing but
1: you know yeah. um, that, yeah. I mean, that's, it it's such a it's a question that I been thinking about and sort of grappling with for a long time because the art world is this sort of very progressive political place right but when it comes to big name artists they're the last people to kind of get involved or sign on to support the rest of the people in the kind of cultural industry and you know whenever my experience with looking at organizing and activism it's happening around the visual arts but visual artists tend not to necessarily get involved unless it's connected to their like individual practice. You know, if they have a practice that is socially engaged, they kind of embody their politics, but collectively we don't necessarily do anything. And, you know, going back to arts and labor, we had a working group that was trying to look at unionizing for artists. And it was also the first working group to just give up because the culture of the artist in the visual arts, I mean, the way we operate, is so individualized. It makes collective action really hard. But beyond that, I mean, when I think of all the organizing and activism that I've seen, the visual arts, there's just this hole. It's like, you know, maybe we sign some letters occasionally but we're not organized in any meaningful way. And I can't speak too much about it right now because it is very early, but there is an uh, sort of ongoing effort um, to get artists to start to think collectively and maybe, you know, form some kind of union. Um and I I, don't...
2: I have something I want to say on this too. I feel like there's also this fundamental issue where um of course this is this has been my opinion for a long time. It's not widely held by everyone, but that um there's a there's a problem also in the art world where artists they think of themselves as being individual, you're saying like it's hard to do collective action, but also very few artists think of themselves as small businesses and to think also outside the art world. If if artists thought of themselves as small businesses, there's so much opportunity. Like think about right now, all the all the the policies, the the bailout, the CARES Act, all this is is. There's a lot of policy and a lot of money being put towards small businesses, but a lot of people in the art world don't consider themselves to be that, so they're not joining forces with these other entities that are out there that are actually making things happen or lobbying for things to happen. And we're not, we don't, we don't join those other movements. And if we had some sort of fundamental shift in the way that we're thinking, not to say that artists aren't special and the art world isn't special, but in fundamental financial, um, in fundamental finances were the same as a lot of other freelancers and a lot of other small businesses. And if there was this, if we thought of ourselves that way, it would be a lot easier to join other movements outside the art world that would get something done much more quickly. I,
1: I completely agree and it, it, it loops back though to that your first statement about you know this kind of like strained relationship that artists have with money and let's mm-hmm. say capitalism, at a kind of ideological level to some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean I, I remember bringing Amy Whitaker into a workshop to talk about a profit loss statement. And one of the artists almost left because it was so anxiety inducing, just on a personal level. And to her beliefs about what art is, because in art school, we always say, it's not about the money. That would be a kind of almost corrupting influence. You can't think about it. Um, so we don't talk about it. And we may be kind of completely opposed to this system of, of private property or something. Um, but another aspect of that is like at one of the wage, um, there was a wage meeting um, where we were just looking at the first proposals of like wagency. And there were definitely artists in the room who were like, we don't want to participate at all in the system. To identify as a small business, to think of ourselves in sort of capitalist terms is the opposite of what we're trying to do with our practices. And that is, you know, I think that's, that's something that's specific to the culture of, art to some degree is there's a kind of built-in decommodification to it. It means sort of opting out of the system entirely. And yet I, I will say when I'm one of the last union calls, one of the new uh, people that's interested in doing this work, the first concern was financial literacy for artists. you know, And so this is one of those areas where I just see this kind of gap um, Exists and it, it overlaps between the work that you're doing and what I'm experiencing in, in labor activist circles.
0: You know, I do feel like there's um, a kind of otherism that happens um, where artists do feel like they um, are s- somehow separate in um, that, that um you know, there are sort of, there are real reasons for why you, you know, there's a benefit for thinking that way. Um, you know, especially if you're kind of ensconced in the um, commercial system that um, rewards a kind of individualism. But the off, like offsetting that, you know, um, I had been talking to a friend who works in the um, nonprofit arts sector, and she had some concerns about how well. On the one hand, some like the um, emergency. Uh, artist relief fund was really uh, necessary, absolutely necessary. It did also kind of encourage a kind of otherism where people, artists were like, oh, okay, there's a grant. There's a special grant for me. So now I don't need to apply for unemployment insurance. Right. right.
2: And that drives me crazy. So <laughs> like, it drives me nuts because you don't know a, law, a small law firm, they're all applying for the PPP loan, the like, wh- whatever is out there they're applying for it immediately. It doesn't matter. They're not thinking, oh, it's probably not for me. They're thinking, oh, they're gonna decide if it's for me and I'll get it or I won't. And like, the, and there are tons of businesses that you could argue don't need it that are like applying for those things because, but they're set up to help them. And artists are like, well, I, I don't think I fit quite entirely. Like I don't pay myself in that way. I don't, I didn't have a steady income. And it drives me crazy. Artists are the ones who should be applying for every single one of those things and seeing my, if they, every single one.
0: To my if, mind, this is like what we're seeing is like the weight of self-subsidizing that then it sort of influences how we think about our finances, right? Because self-subsidizing is a thing that's expected, but it also is not ever accounted for. And when you don't account for the self-subsidizing, then suddenly you have to do a lot of kind of mental gymnastics um, to, to think about yourself as a professional, but also at like not you know a craftsperson um, or hobbyist. You're a professional, but then somehow, like you, you know, you have to explain the self-subsidy in in um other terms other than like sort of business terms and i think that's where a lot of the disconnect comes because like there is a lot of anxiety in trying to resolve something that doesn't resolve itself on a spreadsheet
3: it's funny cuz we are talking about you know artists as a block when of course there are absolutely people who are, you know uh think about these things in very different ways so so william's talking about you know the Oh, artists and they think of the, the decommodification of their work and then there are the other ones who see the term professional development and think of that as okay how do I adapt myself to the market how do I make sure that you know my my work fits in this gallery and will be sold by this collector and, and so on. So those are, there are some of the artists who are like the little mini business people. Um, and so it is great Heather hearing about how, you know, you are including discussion of things like rent strikes and things, cause right, we think of teaching individual artists how to, you know, kind of the dichotomy of, uh, you know, whether it's an individual artist adapting to a system or collective action uh, that is trying to change the system and to try to combine those and to show, show artists and you know people in general it's not just artists who have this issue um but that like you know we are all in this together and you know and so what do artists and art workers and museum workers need well right now we all you know need the same thing we need medicare for all and rent forgiveness and a debt jubilee and you know, and, and maybe a universal basic income. Although I, I have to say I haven't read enough about that. You know, that's something I need to work on, my my knowledge about. So these are we are all in this boat together. And that's again what you know. I mean, we knew this, but the pandemic has really made this this clear. Yeah.
2: I also want to I want to say that I'm not a huge fan of the capitalist system. <laughs> like I'm not I'm like, whoa, capitalism. But I, I think that um but i just think that being knowledgeable about these subjects and knowing how other industries deal with them and and exactly what is available to other to people in other industries what they're taking advantage of is super important because again just shunning it because it's it's part of the system that you don't want to be a part of i think sort of cuts off a lot of avenues where people could be working together to change the system. Like I, so teaching all these things for prefer for, for personal empowerment and prefer, personal professional development, if we're all doing it together, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity. So what we're trying to do is set the stage for these opportunities for people to work together, to create new systems or to, to change the system together. Like I, I don't see it as being like you, you hear about when of you, hear about taxes, you leave in your, I mean, taxes is actually the worst example because no one's changing. that. (laughs) But um, other, there's like the rent strike or whatever, like thinking about, no, there's a better example. What's another better example? I don't know, just the debt, debt, like credit debt, like knowing all the different options to you. And also knowing how other businesses actually use debt to their advantage and leveraging things. Not that I'm saying you should do that, but other people do do that in the world. And like, shouldn't artists have that in their toolbox too? Like, so, so trying to set these platforms where people can talk about it and then decide if they're going to change it or go with it or whatever. Like, I'm not taking one stand on most and, of them. You most know, of I
1: think one of the areas where I've seen um, artists look at their kind of exceptional position, relatively small number of people, uh, but, a lot of artists rent commercial spaces, right? And they have commercial leases. And Jenny Dubnow, of the Artist Studio Affordability Project, shifted the whole focus of the conversation from like what individual artists could do towards getting, learning about public policy, learning about zoning, learning about commercial rent laws so that she could start to work with other community organizations um, to, help, to, to help artists. It was gonna, it, it's gonna require helping all small businesses and all commercial leaseholders get stronger laws because that is something that you sort of can't fix at the individual level. You know, you can get lucky and find a space. Um, but that that's one of those areas where, you know, b- being an artist um, means that you probably have a lot more in common with other groups of people out there doing things. And that, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about zoning or commercial rent laws until I started working with Jenny and the artist due to, affordability project. But where that took me was like down to City Hall to speak on behalf of like the Long Island City Coalition, you know, not to speak for them on behalf of ASAP to pledge our support. But as a group, we represent like five artists, you know, who and we've had multiple people come through and there's been more interest in it. But trying how to draw people in to support policy change is very different than learning how to kind of like see yourself as a small business and navigate the systems that can help benefit you. And I think what I'm hearing is that, you know, we need to be able to do that and collectively advocate for better laws, for better policies, you know, and that that seems to be the harder push right now. And I think, Nikki, the emergency sessions are like one of those steps of trying to take all of these different kind of atomized collective actions and bring them into conversation with one another. And I think that's part of what, you know, a union, even just for artists that would work in relation to other freelance and cultural workers is another effort to do that. Because I think we, I, I recognize that I need to do both. You know, I need to be able to kind of understand how systems work, how to see myself as a small business and as, you know, a, a an activist and an organizer and advocate for policies that are going to benefit more than myself. And that's just something that um you know I, I think is difficult though. You know, we're not we're not there yet, you know. Uh, it kind of like bridging these two things.
3: And and it's interesting because I thought one thing that I I've noticed just not just in the first session but and in the feedback that we got and other organizations doing zoom uh, teachins and so on is how um, how unions remain incredibly important to to museum workers and cultural workers even when they've lost their jobs you know and per, and particularly in museums they have taken the opportunity to really you know lay off most of their union newly unionized staff um, and uh, or a high percentage um, and but you know we, these people still you know workers realize you know, how important the union is. And, and if we, when we think about how the art world needs to be changed, unions need to re- be a big part of that.
1: Yeah, now I, I just want to add one thing to that is, you know, Patty was talking about self subsidy for artists and we're dealing with a community of, of people who generally might not make any money and might lose money on their practice. And so that's one of the things that makes talking about money very difficult. Um, but it's also a a sort of industry where like very few people make a whole lot of money and then also have a whole lot of cultural leverage. And when I think about an artist union, it's not necessarily from a position of organizing around a lot of the money that most of us make, because we don't make a lot of money, but really an organization almost of people that don't make money, you know, that are sort of losing money and need resources and need support. And yet, you know, it is this huge multi-billion dollar industry. And so the the conversation about like an artist union doesn't really go very far if we aren't pulling in the people that are actually generating all of this revenue in the primary market. And then the secondary market, we have no connection to. Auctions, secondary sales, all of that is just that wealth is being generated and, and held, you know, amongst the kind of collector class. So, I mean, it's so kind of complicated to talk about a visual arts union because it is just so different from other, the how other indus, cultural industries operate, you know, and um, just how people make money in those, those fields. Um, I don't know, it, it poses a kind of particular challenge, at least when talking about the kind of labor and the economics of the art, you know, the, the, the commercial side of the market.
0: I mean, it may be too early to talk about this, so you should just say that but i'm wondering like what are the points of leverage that an artist union might have if they are primarily made up of people who of artists who don't make money like where how how's this going to work
1: so one of the first criticisms is that if artists were to sort of boycott or um strike for example we would just be withholding labor from ourselves and shoot ourselves in the foot um Mm -hmm. But we have seen that the idea of pulling content out of institutions has an enormous amount of leverage. Um, Another area that I think is less discussed is the amount of information that we have. We've seen other organizations and sort of activist efforts bring transparency to bear, that if you share information and make it public, then you have some leverage. And a lot of that involves kind of shaming institutions into doing the right thing. And we have seen institutions not change. Um, even when that information is made public. But one thing, the way the gallery world can operate is that it's very siloed and atomized. And you can have two artists within the same gallery who don't know whether or not they're being paid and they don't talk about that. So there isn't that kind of internal information sharing. And I think one thing an artist union could do is have that information at least internally shared before it goes public. Because once you make that public, you're talking about suing a gallery for not paying their artists and everyone's reputation can be damaged immediately. And um, so we don't have any mechanism for that kind of information sharing. And I would say that would give us some leverage if we yeah, were negotiating so. with galleries and institutions. You know, Certainly if artists are being paid different fees or some shows get fees and some shows don't, You know, these are things that a union could do But I do think, uh, and also, you know, Nikki asked earlier, where are the top 100 artists signing on to a big letter saying institutions, if you don't hire your staff back, we're not going to show with you, you know, that would be something that, you know, uh, would be really important if we wanted to exert some pressure on on MoMA, say, to bring back their educators, you know, in terms of getting rid of all their uh, freelance or contract, you know, educators working on contracts. I mean, that to me would be a sort of a no-brainer but one of the things we know is that artists have different vulnerabilities we know that they're also willing not willing to risk their own careers you know and the way the letters operate is that it does sort of can accumulate to a position of kind of perceived solidarity but every decision to sign those letters is like a calculated risk assessment to some degree for a lot of artists like do i want to you know be seen as antagonistic to to institutions that I work with. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that's still complicated, but if if an artist union might sort of come around to getting that kind of collectivity and solidarity together so it's not formed every single time a situation arises, could be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, you know, kind
3: of like I, I'd be interested in like, in terms of a traditional un- union, like one thing that I, you know, I'm interested in in learning more about is how actors' equity started, you know, like, and I know there's so many differences, but you would also think like actors, how are, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna join the union and they're just gonna take whatever job they can. But, you know, in the way that that wage, um, working artists in the greater economy managed to, as you said, shame so many of these kind of smaller nonprofits into signing on to paying, um a certain amount of money um you know I don't know that artists then don't work with non-wage certified institutions but it definitely is like you know a thing that institutions show off about if they are wage certified um mm-hmm. and uh and so you kind of want to look at those models and and can you you know it seems like it will take a very long time but at some point will there be like a tipping point? Um, to use another terrible word like pivot um, <laughs> where like, you know, the, it, it becomes really, it, it's uncomfortable for institutions or galleries to ignore this artist union, you know, um, or for artists not to be part of it. And are they considered scabs if they work with a place or, you know, that's where you, what you want to get to. Um, and uh, oh, there was something else I was going to say that of course is now so go I don't know what I was going to
2: say. So, yeah. <laughs> I I think it would also be interesting just bargaining for contracts together for, from fabricate, like fabricators, printers, framer, like that kind of stuff, not just like breaking down other systems, but just getting better prices at places where they make good work that are expensive. Like if there was a whole union that was willing to throw their weight behind a certain fabricator and, I mean, it would just be, it would be interesting to see like what could come of that and, um, what resources could be like freed yeah. up or made available to everyone.
1: Absolutely, and I think even just this, the things that we've been talking about around sort of early union activity is that visual artists have a kind of strange exceptional economy, just that it works differently than other sort of economic systems. But there are so many types of labor attached to it and that surround it that this doesn't have to be just like an artist union per se. You know, we really should be in conversation with all the people that work in and around the industry. And pretty much every artist that I know is also employed somewhere else or doing some other kind of work. And so they might belong to another union for a a specific institution and they might be involved in other kind of union work. And then my concern is addressing the kind of gaps, like why don't the 100 top 100 artists sign on to the letters? Um, we don't have any resale royalties that other industries have or residual that can kind of provide an economic incentive for people to get on board because that revenue can provide benefits, real tangible benefits like healthcare, you know, to membership. And so these are gaps we don't have and that we need to be talking about what the sort of distinctions are and then what the commonalities are because we're we're sort of in the same general field of activity and so I definitely don't want to be setting up anything that would be seen as exceptional like this is just for visual artists with galleries you know that's not the the interest you know but it is my interest is in looking at where there are no services no recourse um, no collectivity um, and you know visual artists seem to you know it becomes like almost a part of being an artist is to be that sort of separate person who doesn't quite operate in society. You know, it's like the bad shaman model that artists like to talk about. Like, oh, I live over here and I look at your society, but I'm not really a part of it. And that sort of influences so many things, the way we operate. This kind of like perpetual outsideriness of it. Um, and that I, I think does need to change. Um, I know we had some other questions and I don't want to stop the conversation, but I just want to make sure that we're sort of getting to everything that you wanted to talk about and um, just the sort of like, you know, we're in a period of sort of heightened awareness about all of these issues and it does seem like change is possible. Like Nikki, your piece, the review about MoMA doesn't seem so far-fetched if, if people really got behind it. You know, like I know you had to frame it as a speculative review, like it was science
3: fiction. Is, it is all possible if there is a will for it. Um, and the problem is that at MoMA, there is no will. <laughs> um, but it, so I, I, Claire and I were talking about doing something now about looking at sort of returning to that piece um, in the COVID era, because, you know, and we even included this line, which was a line that like, you know, the art forum editor gave us as he was killing the piece was, well, the editor's art forum wanted to know, how are you going to, you know, you have to think about what you can't do if you're spending all this money on that. And that's why we put in the like, how are you going to pay for it? You know and I was like that is such the like GOP line you know oh and there goes my backdrop um the (laughs) just for those uh listening my snake poster just fell off the wall um so uh yeah no you know and it's like well maybe you don't need to buy a lot of new artwork you know you don't need to buy new work you've got an enormous collection maybe you can sell and we included that sell some of those birds sell, you know, whatever it is. Um, and maybe that would be harder right now. I don't know. Maybe museums, you know, museums might not be buying art, although they probably are laying off their stuff and buying art. Um, and you don't need to expand endlessly. Um, and, uh, you know, there are so many things and, but, uh, you know, another basic thing that needs to be done is, rethinking the museum structure and governance, which isn't something that we went into a lot. Um, but, you know, clearly as we're seeing like museum endowments, board of trustees, they give money to specific things um, and they want to give have their name on the building. Um, they don't want to give money to, you know, pay for healthcare or childcare for staff. Uh, but, you know, they're getting, you know, if somebody did this, if, is it a small museum somewhere? Is it MoMA is the first? If they told their trustees and donors, this is what, you're still getting your huge tax break. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that should be enough, but your money is going to go to this important thing, that crucial thing, this other thing that we need um, to, to support our staff. Uh, And then one of the, we told this sort of in the opposite way in in our, in our piece, we started with what you would see in the museum, hanging on the walls, and then we went to the structural stuff. But one of the points of our article was, once you change the structural things and who you hire and how you treat them, that will necessarily change what you see in the museum, and that will also become uh, more, you know, equitable and diversitys. You know, two terrible words. Um, but
1: the the museum,
3: what you see, is never going to change. You're not going to have a new MoMA until you change how it's
1: governed. Yeah, it just reminds me that when we say like artists don't talk about money, if we start talking about money with each other and we start teaching each other how to just best practices for financial literacy. Let's say the other side of that is talking about money at the institutional level, you know, and really looking at those endowments, talking about how the money is spent. You know, so these aren't sort of separate issues. And so, you know, I think if you if you had something like an artist union that was there to provide financial literacy for its membership and help them, you know, think long term about this industry, we're in, and also looking at how we make money and how it's distributed is one aspect of it. And the other aspect is looking at how institutions spend their money and that, you know, um, if we're asking individual artists to become better about talking about figuring out how to deal with money, um, you know, that's the same thing with institutions. At least there has to be transparency there, you know, Mm -hmm. and I I, I just see them as sort of being linked, you know. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: How how optimistic are all of you about the possibility for change? right now, you know, we're sort of in the midst of a pandemic, but like, you know, now and looking forward.
3: Are you hearing the wailing? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I am, um, I am not optimistic, which is why I surround myself (laughs) in these emergency sessions with people, with speakers who are so energizing and uh, Hannah Apple, who's a, a debt organizer and an economic anthropologist who spoke at, at the, you know, earlier this month, you know, she said, she said, this is not a time to ask for less. It's a time to ask for more. And I was like, yes, yes, I love this. But personally, I, 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 it's very hard to, on your own, you know, in those darkest hours, it's really, it's it's hard. And that's, again, why we need to work together because together, maybe we can push each other.
2: I think you chose two people that think the same way, unfortunately, because <laughs> I would love to be the one that's like, no, it's all going to change for really the better. But I um I think if anything's if there's a time for change, it's now. I mean, tearing everything down and to build back, like you've got to build it differently, I hope. However, um, I this might be a real downer, but I just see like income disparity, racial disparity, like all of this stuff just getting deeper and wider right now. Like I, I'm i really nervous about what's gonna happen. And it ties back to the kid thing, to be honest, like watching, so my kindergartner goes to public school and they do these Zoom meetings and they have resources for the, he goes to an exceptional public school that's in Fort Greene and awesome called Arts and Letters. I'll give it a shout out. They're doing a really, really, really good job. Um, But um, I don't, not every public school is able to do what they're doing. And even within this exceptional public school, it's not equal, like what's happening with all the kids. And I was listening to something about the summer slide that normally happens every summer to every kid. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic when the kids go back to school in the fall, there's a summer slide for a bunch of kids where they actually like regress in a lot of things because their families haven't been doing what, what like reading or whatever over the summer. Um, And now it's going to be six months at least. And like the, yeah, the edge, the difference in education that's, you know, so thinking about the future and all the kids that are coming, like I, I have a lot of, a lot of um, anxiety when thinking about that kind of stuff, but I am, I am hopeful that there are people that are smarter than me and more optimistic than me and um, that will, that will think through this and figure something out. Like Nikki said, like I do the same thing that she does. Like I'm surrounding myself with people who have ideas and and trying to get their voices heard, so that we as someone someone can can think of um, ways forward.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think. Well, for example, the news is always so terrible. And then today, on my phone, on the New York Times app, the top, and I hate the New York Times but I read it. The top headline was about, you know, Biden dropping his, we're going to return to the same old, same old, talking with, with Sanders and Sanders' people, opening up his platform. And I was like, yes, now we just need to not have the election stolen from us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, so, you know, we, we need to, it is like there's a lot of radical imagination, um, imaginative work that needs to happen right now. We need to, I mean, and a lot of this obviously has been done, there are people who've been doing this, they spend their lives doing this, Mm -hmm. but um, to think about, you know, specifically the art world, what do we want it to look like, but also how can we make this happen? Who needs to be involved? Who do we need to talk to or what kind of pressure can we can we bring to bear Um, because if we don't do this you know that like the powers that be are just are going to as you make things even worse and more unequal and 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 so on and this is of course I'm talking about the art world now but this is for for everything, um, and and in terms of the, I realized what I wanted to mention before. Um, you know, like in terms of the, you know, this idea that we have to ask for more, not less. Um, I was involved with. There was a uh, Times Up Art World group. It was called Times Up Museums, um, which I was invited to. Like the the second meeting, it met for like a year and a half. Started kind of dying down. It always remained like. Totally, kind of secret. I wonder if any of you have even heard of it. Um, and what was being come up with was kind of a list of not demands, but like a, gee, wouldn't it be nice if museums could not discriminate and and have more shows to you know devoted women artists and you know and and women of color and uh, and then this was being shopped around to like museum directors like hey Glenn Lowry what do you think could you sign this would that be okay and like and that sucked even even then but now like let's drop this like there's you know we're not going around asking people anymore we need to demand and we need to figure out how we make that change and I'm not that person to to
1: figure out and lead
3: it and all but I am there (laughs)
1: following and boosting you all the way. Yeah, Patty, like three years ago, I did a show called After the Contemporary, and it was sort of imagining if nothing changed, what would art look like? And it's a dismal picture. It's like there's no more Art Basel because Miami sinks, you know, the beach is flooded and Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley vampire guy, you know, opens up a private VIP art fair on a small island and there's five mega galleries left. You know, I I think if we don't change anything, the picture is going to be pretty bleak uh, for us. But the thing that does give me um, some hope right now is that people are talking that I've never seen in the same room together. I'm seeing so many groups, especially like the emergency sessions is an example of this, are people coming together who are doing all this great work and it's being done at the local community level. Um, It's being done regionally, it's being done, you know, in specific places, but I was really taken by Dean Spade's talk at the emergency session about the sort of great thing that is mutual aid at the community level, but it's also something that because it's local isn't uh, uh, it can't be replicated for sort of like everyone um and it's all, and this was echoed by Sandy Nurse at Mayday Space talking about how deeply unsustainable unsustainable the work is if it's all volunteer and you're already sharing limited resources. So when Nikki, you say, this is the time to ask for more, absolutely. And what Dean talked about was um, the need to kind of scale up and connect these different initiatives together to build sort of more durable institutions that can support places like Mayday Space. So that we're not just kind of, trying to do the most we can with the limited resources we have, the limited time we have. Um and you know, it, it I I get freaked out when I think about the first George Bush, President George Bush senior, his big presidential initiative was to you know, encourage volunteerism, which I was like if life. Hmm? Yeah. It like Absolutely. And that, you know, if people would just do work on their own, they could fix their own communities. And I just, I get terrified when I see a a solution is the same one that like a Republican would offer as as the fix. And so I I was really struck by, you know, Dean and Sandy just saying that, you know, like, we need to organize and come together, uh, because these can't just be kind of like local fixes, you know, it has to be that and this, this bigger demand for redistribution of wealth, anti-austerity policies. And so I don't see these things as being separate at all. Um, and, and I am optimistic right now that people are talking and connecting in ways that I don't think would have happened before the pandemic, unfortunately. And Not I yet.
3: want to say that another thing that that, that Dean mentioned when in, in the Q&A and I was asking about success stories, um, he mentioned also, because in part we had a state assembly member, Yu who's. who's Fantastic, and was in the minority, voting against Cuomo's austerity budget, um, and gave a really amazing, impassioned speech. And and Dean was talking about successes at the local level of government as well. You know, local, low level. You know, he mentioned with a group, a small group in Washington, they managed to block uh, the building of a new uh, new prison, which is something you know, that activists have been trying to do um, in New York City as well. And here I should also say, you know, we should mention there are very active artists, um, activist, artist groups, artists, activist groups in, in New York City who have been doing amazing work for a long time. Um, but yes, we want to kind of, you know, do
1: more, try to, try to you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know Betty you and the Chinatown Art Brigade have been doing a lot around this. And, you know, it, it's amazing having looked at just um, the idea of trying to get the Small Business Job Survival Act passed at the city council level. It's been kicking around for over 25 years. And they had a hearing like a year and a half ago that Jenny Dubnow and I went and sat in for like a six hour public hearing on this bill. And no matter how many small organizations supported that, we couldn't get it over the And right now we're actually talking about commercial rent regulation that like Janaris is pushing, Um, but you know, I mean, it's been sort of great to see we've actually got some laws passed at the state level, and that you know, like government can work if pushed hard enough. And I absolutely, I mean, I hear what you're saying, Nikki, that like it is not just a national rent strike; it's also the local policies pushing those and building community support for those. And again, like. I feel like there's just some sort of like all or nothing scenarios that get thrown around. Like we either, we're going to have a national rent strike or we're not. And that's the only solution that's going to work when we know that it's, it's a scaffolding of all of these things. And that's much more difficult to deal with, you know, but absolutely necessary. So I think, yeah. um, Pointing out actual community successes is really important when it, when we get things done.
0: You know, I will say also on a, on a national level, I think, um, a lot of the news has been just overwhelmingly depressing. Um, And so that's been very difficult. And that makes it very difficult for me, at least to feel any kind of optimism. Um, That said, this morning I woke up and it was like the first ray of sunshine I feel like I've felt in like, I don't even know how long, because that was like, Obama gave that uh, convocation speech that was like seven minutes long and like my Twitter feed was filled with um, like the hashtag, oh God, what was it? Like graduation 2020 or something like that. Um, and they were all positive messages. And I hadn't seen like, and it, they also like, There was definitely a fair amount of like, you know, suck it Trump um, (laughs) attached to that. But it was actually really a relief to have something that was a positive message. And I think like one of the traps that I had gotten into was that I felt like, you know, I felt like the truth didn't matter because if you flooded the zone with shit, like you know, only a few of us would have it and what good did it, would it make? And like, I felt like, you know, I actually, I have this written down because I tweeted, he's like, Obama said, if you listen to the truth that's inside you, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient, people notice and they will gravitate towards you. And that is like, in some ways, a very general message. But I was like, that's what, to me, That was the argument for the truth that spoke to me. And it was also the argument for like what good leadership looks like. And at that same time, you know, what you were talking about, Nikki, all of that news about Biden, like changing, uh, like changing tax and like putting together a more progressive task force like that. This morning was the first morning I woke up and I had Eddie hope and it felt, it felt good.
1: Well, um, we are approaching our like one and a half hour mark of, I just want
3: another, I just want another quote in there, which is, um, uh, it's a quote that is from Frederick Douglass, which has weirdly followed me. I used to live on West 43rd Street. The SEIU offices were there with a big sort of mosaic mural with this quote. And now uh, we're up in Morningside Heights and there's Frederick Douglass housing near us, which has this quote. And it is, if there is no struggle, there can be no progress. And, you know, it's going to be a big struggle. And we, you know, we just have to be be ready for that and so so cliche you know i'm with heather on the the children thing is really hard and scary um but you know and 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 with patty on the fact that we have been left to fend for ourselves by federal and state governments that have no plan for how we're going to get out of this and our children and other children who have it you know much much harder are going to be left behind for a year at least and you know we're lucky our kids are so young and can can bounce back they're not you know they're not they're not sixth graders eighth grader you know where it's really hard but you know anyway back to the if there is no struggle there can be no progress
0: we have to win
2: in november we have to it's like there's not even a question and by enough they can't steal it
1: So I just want to give you the the opportunity, if you need to depart or leave us, Um, Patty and I have some news that we could discuss. If you want to stick around for a little bit, we can do that. Um, Because one of the things that I wanted to add on to Patty's sort of sentiment about some good news is that uh, Clorinda Macklow, who's part of Culture Push, has started a spreadsheet just looking at sort of... um, the model model, ethical actions by arts organizations in the time of COVID. And there's just a couple of things that uh, we thought were worth sort of sharing is the ICA Watershed, a satellite satellite of ICA Boston was set to open in May. Instead, the watershed has been transformed into a temporary distribution hub for fresh produce for residents of East Boston. And the museum's catering company, um, Catered Affairs is working to help. and then the Frederick, the Marshall Frederick Sculpture Museum is offering take and make art activity kits um, for local community members that include art supplies and instructions and you know all kinds of materials. Um, and they were originally offered like the museum was originally offering online activities, but switched gears when they realized that many families didn't have internet access. And just a last quick shout out is that the Abrams Art Center um, has been providing micro grants. To, um, and direct cash assistance to local Lower East Side and Chinatown-based artists and art workers. Um, they have ex- expedited and paid all remaining commissions to 2019 and uh, 2020 uh, season artists, and they provided artists whose shows were postponed with post-po- postponement fees that were uh, near equal to the artist box office fee. They've honored um, all fees paid to residents. Um, they've continued to pay all teaching artist contracts, even when teachers aren't able to teach, and implemented online teaching um, to continue providing education. And they paid all contract to tech, tech workers, um, were directly affected by the Abrams show camp cancellations. And, you know, they're posting all of this and all their resources online. So this is just, you know, something that Clarinda is organizing on a spreadsheet. And if anyone has uh, any positive shout outs or ethical uh, models for museums, um, we'll post this on the podcast link. And so people can add to this directly. And I don't know if Nikki or Heather, you had any sort of good news about uh, institutions that you've seen because most of the news I've seen is about layoffs, you know, museum layoffs.
3: No, I would just mention the sort of more community art spaces like Mayday Space, which you mentioned before, co-founded by Sandy Nurse and, and run by a, a collective um, and uh, Woodbine. Uh, so uh, Mayday Space is in Bushwick, Woodbine is in, is in Ridgewood uh, and they have both been using their spaces as uh, mutual aid centers.
2: Um, I'll say that I've used the Brooklyn Museum has had a lot of good educational tools that they've been sending out for um, kids art projects and all kinds of stuff, which has been nice. Um, but also something that made me smile was one day when I woke up uh, the, it's just not a huge institution. Fire Island art residency. Um, I just read that they had taken their summer budget, which they knew they wouldn't be using anymore uh, because no one can come to uh, they just gave it out to all the alums of the program they split it up between every alum that had ever been there without having them make fill out an application or go jump through any hoops they were just going to divide it up among all the alums and I thought that was a really nice gesture and at a time when a lot of the aid requires a lot of paperwork and proving yourself and it was just nice to know that they just like believed in whatever those artists were going to do
1: yeah and I would add I, I had a it was supposed to be in a show called 2020 uh, that was going to open <laughs> June at the Aldrich Museum. And I recently spoke with Richard Klein, who's the director of exhibitions there. And he was able to tell me they, they've, not, they've not had to fire any staff. They were able to get access to PPP money and have been able to pay all their staff through at least July and uh, are likely they're not going to cancel any exhibitions. And it looks like for the foreseeable future, we'll not have to lay off any of the staff. Um, which I think is sort of great. And I'm glad that Richard's been able to uh, do that at the museum, Um, especially if I'm going to show there at all in October. If there was a bunch of staff layoffs, I would probably say no thanks. Um, Another bit of news that we wanted to talk about since it just sort of shut down yesterday was uh, Freeze Week. And Freeze had their own sort of COVID-19 relief efforts. And we can talk about that very briefly, but we also wanted to talk about that in relation to NADA's upcoming fair fair, which you know takes a very different approach to this idea of kind of um, artist benefit models that we're used to, which is like artists donate work, the work sold, and some percentage of that goes to some cause somewhere. Uh, NADA has set up a cooperative revenue sharing model, which I do think is really interesting. So Patty, I don't know if you wanna to talk to us a little bit about what the freeze week um, COVID-19 relief efforts were and what we saw, we we visited together.
0: Right, so we uh, visited Freeze on the uh, last possible day um, in the last possible hour. Um, And just as a sort of general note, when you reach the website, uh, it's very difficult. Um, I had to try this three times before I could even figure out where the viewing room was. So to even enter it is quite difficult. And then when you uh, enter the freeze viewing room, as far as I can tell, the main difference between um, visiting a freeze art fair um, online and visiting any other website online is that the images are bigger. Um, <laughs> and I personally think that the like um, as a fair model, like there is a lot of room for improvement because. Um, You know, I keep looking at Gagosian's Instagram account, which I think they do a very good job of. They're always, like, zooming in slowly on, like, artwork that's essentially still, but giving it some sort of sense of urgency.
1: burns effect.
0: Yeah, just by this, like, you know, yeah, here's some, like, zoom in on art, like, text that's, you know, floats past you and feels important because it's, like, white on black or something. And then, um, so as an advertisement, I feel like that works really well. And it's dynamic content yeah. that's changing. You go on the freeze website and it's like a static image and like, that's how you have to navigate it. So it's very boring. Um, and nobody likes it
3: as far as I can tell. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't, I told I just want to say quickly, I totally missed freeze Week cause I, I I have no reason to actually know about when it's happening, but I'm just looking at the website and I'm looking at about the magazine and their May, June, 2020 issue talks about how it's a a new look for a new decade, Uh, Uh, but, you know, in the middle of the decade and says nothing about
1: COVID-19, so. Well, you wouldn't necessarily know from visiting the Freeze website that there was really any COVID-19 relief effort. Patty had to send me the link to get into the, relief effort room, which was in the nonprofit section, like scroll down, there were three separate rooms of works that were being sold to benefit COVID-19. Now, there were no specified amounts of money in terms of what would be donated, and there were no specific causes given. It was basically like if you buy this $10,000 piece, the gallery might give some of this money to something somewhere. What it is, I don't know.
0: And also, like, so we I, we discovered it in the nonprofit section. But I went through a couple of other sections in the fair because the website is organized in the way the way a fair might be organized. So you have like the main exhibition, then you have the focus section, which is for emerging galleries. Then you have like um, special projects. Then you have non-profit. Yeah. So what happens is that. Uh, Basically, there's a bunch of, uh, in each section, if you scroll far enough, you'll find these red pop-ups that say benefit, and you can click in and view them. But because there's uh, so little structure for the nonprofit, like maybe this will go to this or that, it really doesn't do anything more than act as an advertisement for the galleries who are placing the artwork there. Because one of the things that I noticed was, uh, so for example, Gagosian had a Katerina Gross show. They placed one of the Katerina Gross uh, sculptures that they had in their like online show in the benefit. And that piece sold, but it was essentially just an advertisement for them. So like they pay... Assuming this is even tracked, like let's say they pay five percent of the sale of the, um, you know of, of the piece to some rando nonprofit, then that is basically the cost of advertising.
3: Yeah, and they probably took it from the artist percentage.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Right. I hope Um, the artist had a say. I hope the artist had a say in where it was going. I mean, honestly, I don't look to freeze as being like a model for um, or my moral compass or anything or even to donate anything. Honestly, like I feel like that's a separate thing. They do their thing. It would have been it would be nice, though, if the galleries, which I think some of the galleries have said, if they individually were like, if you buy anything from us during this time, we're donating money to X. I would go to them for that. I wouldn't necessarily go to freeze for like, to make my donation.
3: But right. I, don't, I don't think anybody's deciding what to buy based on whether something's going somewhere.
0: Yeah, I, I don't either. Um, at, so at this point, I'm going to just interrupt the podcast for a second because William has texted me. Yeah. He can't get back on. It looks like he's been bumped off by, uh, via his internet, um, which seems to pose uh, a little bit um, of an
3: issue. <laughs> It's all you. Just go crazy, Patty. <laughs> Do whatever you want now.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, right. he's, he's not, he's not right. holding you back. He's not holding you back anymore. <laughs> William, thanks so much for joining
1: us again. Yeah, my internet went down. so. It was
0: well, uh, you know. In your absence, uh, we were just about to start a conversation about the um, Nada Fair Fair, which is a cooperative sales model. Um, would you mind going over how this cooperative model would work and why it might be a little bit different than the freeze fair model, which seems to be um, uh, profit first?
1: Yeah. So. I thought the fair fair model is really an interesting alternative to the kind of ways in which we usually think about artists' benefits or how they work. Um, it, within the cooperative sales model, 50% of each sale goes directly to, the, ga- to uh, the gallery, and that's split evenly between the artists and the gallery. 20% of each sale goes into cooperative gallery, into a cooperative gallery sales pool, and that's to be shared evenly among all participating galleries. So Hypothetically, if you didn't sell anything at NADA, you still might get 20% of all the sales, or you will. Um, 20% of each and 10% of each sale goes to support uh, NADA itself, the organization. The, the only thing I'm unclear about the fair is whether or not uh, galleries left to sort of pay anything to participate in it. But this is a very different model. Um, I haven't seen this sort of proposed before where there are pools. Split between you know galleries and artists directly, and in terms of providing artists relief, this is one way to do it. Where you know every artist in that show is going to receive some money from everyone's uh, activity and uh, all the sales in the show. So, I, I was kind of heartened to see this model. Um, Put out into the world because it, it's sort of different than the other platform that Werner uh, put together which basically shares his brand with 12 smaller galleries in three cities around the world or the um, LA model that just came out where it's basically kind of co-curating for a lot of uh, like 200 online galleries in LA. Um, none of those seem to have any kind of revenue sharing model like Nada's fair.
0: Heather, how does this sound um, to your mind as somebody who has um, experience with both commercial galleries, working at one, and um, uh, fairs in a sort of more general way?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't I hadn't heard this yet, so it's really interesting to me, and it reminds me of maybe APT also, that Artist Pension Trust, like everyone putting something in for the greater good. And I always I. I wish that had worked out the way it was supposed to in theory um, because I think that these sorts of models are really important for long-term. I mean, we mentioned earlier resale royalties, just any other form of income that we're all working together to make sounds really attractive to me. Um, I also had heard about the future, future fair, which just happened also. And in that one, the galleries are paying to be part of it. And, um, but the fair is actually profit sharing with the galleries um, at the end. If the, any profit that the fair makes, they were going to split with the galleries so that in essence, if they did really well, got sponsorship, ticket sales, whatever else, the galleries would end up paying nothing potentially or even making money at the end from the fair. Ideally, um, I just love I don't know which one works best in practice, but I just love the idea of a different profit-sharing model for an art fair, because I think the way, as someone who participated in a lot of them over the years, I, they're just so not sustainable for mid-tier and smaller galleries, just so not sustainable. And that was becoming outrageously clear to everyone before this ever hit. So,
0: um, And Nikki, do you have uh, any particular thoughts on um, Nada's new
3: model? Uh, yeah, it, it, it sounds good. Um, APT also uh, came to my mind. I didn't know that, that APT failed. Um, I'll, I'll have to look that up. I'm curious. Um, but, uh, no, anything that's fair. I mean, I, yeah, I, I have really little to no interest in fairs and in, in general, but, um, certainly anything that is, uh, more equitable in whatever area that's, that's great.
1: Yeah and I would say I'm I'm just even thinking about unionizing artists that would probably have a kind of revenue sharing model built in if 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 artists right now are getting zero resale royalties and we were able to say what if we got you 10% you would that might open the door to saying well how about 2 to 5% of that goes back into the arts ecosystem that the money isn't just going to you but it's going to support you know, galleries, nonprofits, um, arts writers, the, the kind of the whole thing. And so any revenue sharing models in this highly competitive system are incredibly welcome because, again, you know, I go back to what Nikki said, we should be asking for more, you know, and right now in terms of revenue sharing, there are very few examples and then zero on the secondary market, you know? Um, so I think, I think it, it, I'm glad it's out there now and that, you know, not is going to try it because I think it's the best one that I've seen so far. That isn't just kind of marketing, you know?
0: Well, I feel like this might be um, a good time to wrap up. Um, uh, As well, the internet connection is stable for all of us. (laughs) Um, I would like to thank uh, both Nikki and Heather for coming on the show. You both, uh, just gave an enormous amount of your time and resources. And I think our listeners are really going to be um, excited
3: to hear what you have to say. Um, well, thank you. I really, um Enjoyed this. And I, you know, it's another thing that I, I've realized in myself and with the audiences for the emergency sessions, like people are so hungry for spaces for discussion. There's so much to talk about. We feel so atomized and alienated right now that like meeting like this and talking through it all is, is really
1: great. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, this was a great conversation.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me too. And I and I knew that I would feel kind of vulnerable coming into this conversation, but you guys are great to talk to. I had a really good time.
0: <laughs> well, we uh, definitely love hearing from you. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to have you guys back on the podcast. Um, at some point, sometime when the pandemic is, uh, we can apply a post to it. Um, and uh, we will talk to you all soon. Great, thank you. Bye. 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 Bye, guys.